0: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from On the Media, Melissa Harris-Perry, Radio Times, Radio Dispatch, The Matthew Filipovich Show featuring our very own Katie Klebusik, HuffPost Live, Dan Savage, and activism from Know Your Nine, and a trigger warning for those sensitive to piss-poor journalism and issues of rape and sexual violence.
1: Last month, Rolling Stone published an explosive 9,000-word feature titled A Rape on Campus, a Brutal Assault and Struggle for Justice at UVA. The author, Sabrina Rubin-Erdley, opened with a terrifying description of a female college freshman being raped by seven University of Virginia fraternity brothers and pledges. The story portrayed not just a brutal crime, but a woeful administration response bordering on obstruction of justice and an unreconstructed UVA rape culture. But at its core, Erdley's article was about a single event, a ritualistic gang rape, told by a single source, the victim, nicknamed Jackie. Here was Eardley describing her sensational scoop on PBS NewsHour.
2: When I first encountered Jackie, I was absolutely shocked by her story. Um, She um, went to the administration and told them that she had been gang raped um, at a fraternity house by seven men while two others watched. Uh, And the administration did nothing about it. The story
1: was simultaneously terrifying and... Unsurprising, conforming with previous reporting on campus sexual assaults and with the bacchanal culture of UVA, where drinking and seduction are so woven into campus tradition, they are immortalized in the school's signature drinking song, Rugby Road. Song is named for UVA's Fraternity Row, and here's one salient stanza: All you girls from Mary Washington and RMWC, never let a Virginia man an inch above your knee. He'll take you to his fraternity house and he'll fill you full of beer, and soon you'll be the mother of a bastard cavalier. The Rolling Stone article reverberated far and wide. The injustice was unspeakable. The rage palpable. And the media reaction, swift. In the article, a student named Jackie says she was gang
3: raped and that friends and a university dean later discouraged her from going to police.
4: Plus, a student comes forward telling Rolling Stone magazine she was gang raped at a University of Virginia frat party. So, how come we didn't hear about this? How come the school didn't tell anybody? Are they covering it
5: up? After the explosive allegations of sexual assault at the university. All a reaction to the Rolling Stone investigation detailing, quote, a culture of rape at UVA with very disturbing details. this
1: morning. Reaction from the university administration, accused in the piece of suppressing justice to protect its own reputation, was swift and dramatic as well. The story in Rolling Stone is shocking. UVA President Teresa Sullivan addressing reporters November 25th.
5: My initial reaction was numbness, but the numbness then turned to anger and a deep grief
6: for the survivors.
5: I want to make it perfectly clear to you and to the watching world that nothing is more important to me than the safety of our students, not our reputation, not our success, and not our history or our tradition if there are
1: systemic problems they must be rooted out with that sullivan suspended all of the campus's fraternities pending a full investigation
7: when the party is over the party is over the party is over how much more can we take when the carnival ends And the colored lights fade There's a sense of not knowing If we should be disgraced Like a wave on an ocean We can break on the rocks When the party is over The party is over The party is over And the pressure just drops
5: Last week when Sabrina Rubin-Erdley joined me to talk about her article in Rolling Stone, I asked her about the choices she made in deciding what details to include in the story. What I did not ask is what she decided to omit. Rolling Stone made an agreement with Jackie, the accuser in the story, not to speak with her alleged attackers. As a result, the story is mostly a one-sided account from the accuser's point of view. Rolling Stone managing editor Lil Dana said on Twitter of that choice... We made a judgment, the kind of judgment reporters and editors make every day. And in this case, our judgment was wrong. We should have either not made this agreement with Jackie or worked harder to convince her that the truth would have been better served by getting the other side of the story. That failure is on us, not on her. Joining my panel now is Chloe Angel, senior columnist at feministing.com and opinion columnist at Reuters. And you were here with me at this table last week and we were all kind of struggling through this story. Where are you in this moment this week?
8: What I said last week uh, was that this article was a tremendous act of public service and that would still be true if they had gotten this article right. And now what we know is that this is actually a tremendous act of public disservice to survivors of rape everywhere and to the people who care about them, love them, support them and are doing everything we can to make sure that this becomes a culture in which we honor and believe survivors of rape.
5: I um, I kept thinking during this week, Dave, about the – because we, we cover issues of sexual assault on this show a lot um, – and what it means to do it in a way that is ethical – um, that does understand what rape culture is for people who are survivors who are coming forward and yet also maintains a level of journalistic
4: integrity. Sure, and let's talk about journalistic integrity because that's what's so important here. <laughs> I, I'm enraged at Sabrina Early, and I'm not enraged because I feel like a frat was done wrong right. because they'll be doing a hey, we're back party by the end of the semester. Um, I'm not even. As enraged about the fact that this is clearly going to push a lot of survivors back into the closet, as horrible as that is, my my, my real rage is for the fact that here's this woman, Jackie, Mm -hmm. she clearly is traumatized, she clearly has some form of PTSD, and she clearly had serious doubts about pushing this story forward. And as a journalist, Mm -hmm. that's when it should have ended. These stories should not be about re-victimizing survivors. They should be about empowering survivors and giving them agency. As soon as Jackie gave any hint of the fact that she was not sure about this story going public, that's when it should have ended, right then and there. It should not be about re-victimizing people. It should be about empowering people when these stories come forward.
5: Dr. Litt, I, I, so, you know, I'm a survivor who did not tell for many years and has never had any kind of legal um, uh, Uh, You know, sense of justice or, or any of those things for a wide variety of reasons, but sort of came of age in a time when we understood that somehow speaking your story, telling it, saying it over and over again, maybe not the details, but simply the identity of survivor was itself kind of inherently empowering, but... It was also a world before Twitter. It was also a world before, you know, a level of social media scrutiny. And I guess part of what I wonder now as a member of the media is whether or not that storytelling is still empowering for survivors if they're not going to have a legal sense of justice.
9: Right. I mean, that's an interesting question because there's a lot of ways in which coming to tell your story in some fashion, you know, can be very therapeutic. Whether or not that story should take place through social media in or any kind of media, that's another question. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, certainly a lot of People do try to push the memories away, and they try not to think about what happened. Um, and that's a way of kind of getting through early on. But over time, in treatment, sometimes that's a, it's very important to actually make sense of your story by talking about it and telling the details of the story
5: but aren't there also implications for being a witness to your own story based on the kind of psychological uh, tricks that we that we practice i mean even when we do segments on uh, on this i always say okay now we're going to do Melissa dissociating on television right <laughs> because it's going to be helpful to me to be able to make it through this segment and and i guess part of what i wonder is then does that make you a almost a less credible witness to your own victimization well
0: i i agree so much with all these points and I think Dave is actually spot on here. I think Rolling Stone dropped the ball in two major ways here and one is that people in general um, have a very hard time with the particulars of memory. People have a hard time uh, across the board uh, differentiating um, suggested memory from real memory mm-hmm. and that's particularly the case in people with PTSD because PTSD is in part a disorder of memory mm-hmm. and people have a very hard time remembering the particulars of events and so in that sense um, placing this woman's story as the the uh, the mm-hmm. central narrative here opened her up to these, these exact kind of criticisms and the second way that Rolling Stone dropped the ball is that they in their statement uh you know distancing themselves they said our faith in her has been yeah. misplaced which I thought and they was came awful. they came yeah. back and changed that but it was a,
5: it felt like that kind of well exactly that kind of revictimization Chloe I want to let you have the last word on this because I know that that you then all of us I think who who stood by Sabrina's story here because we trusted the work that had been done are
8: also now in a position of, of needing to kind of have a say. I think a lot of things are up for dispute in this incident. What is not up for dispute is what we know about false ra- rape accusations, which is that between 2 and 8 percent of accusations are false, which means between 92 and 98 percent of allegations are accurate. And what is also not up for dispute is that this is going to have a chilling effect. This is going to make it harder for every person who has been raped, for the next thousands of people who have been raped, to come forward and tell their story and to be deemed trustworthy no. when they do. What this what this incident is going to do is make it easy Easier for rapists to get away with rape. Oh,
5: yeah, yeah. Why don't
4: you you trust in me? And all you do, I have the faith I, I have in you. Oh, and love will see us through.
6: Joining us now is Laura Dunn. She's a sexual assault survivor and a lawyer, founder of Serve Justice. That's an organization that works to improve the prospect of justice for victims of violence in educational settings and in the criminal justice system. And, Laura Dunn, nice to have you back with us on Radio Times. Thanks for having me on. So what do you make of this story in Rolling Stone? And I was just talking with... uh, to journalists about uh, the, the mistakes that Rolling Stone made in its coverage of the story. But, Laura, from your, your perspective, what do you read?
10: I mean, I guess from my perspective, the thing that stands out the most is actually the note that Rolling Stone um, published after the story had already broken and blaming Jackie for their lack of journalistic fact-checking. I think that was a very harmful moment, um, not just to victims, but to the entire movement to have a publication which had just garnered so much attention to the issue of campus sexual violence. Obviously, that story was not just about Jackie. There were several other victims who spoke out. It covered a lot of very important issues. And for them to write this note, focus on Jackie, and say that they misplaced their trust in her um, really alluded to victim-blaming and the rightness that victims are lying. And that's a very harmful message that Rolling Stone sent. I know that they have since uh, retracted that part of the statement and replaced it to uh, take ownership for their own mistakes, but... That moment can't be gotten back, and I think it was very harmful. Uh, it's very common for victims not to know every detail about their case, and it's clear from the Washington Post coverage that some of those details were things that people had told her after the fact because mm-hmm. she was in shock, um, and it was only later that one of her friends pointed to which fraternity. And so there probably are issues about the specific facts. It doesn't mean something horrible didn't happen. Uh, it just really points to a need to thoroughly investigate.
6: Indeed, and, and and even though, and I understand exactly what you're referring to for Rolling Stone's first explanation and apology, even their rewriting of that apology, you're saying the fact that the first one was out there, that that was their impulse kind of feeds into this notion that victims are not to be believed?
10: Yes, absolutely. And that's actually why there's so much silence around sexual violence. There's been some research about why victims don't choose to go to the police, which is kind of the instinct from members of society is just reports to the police, just tell everyone. Um, well, not if this is the reaction, not if you're going to be disbelieved. And unfortunately, we did seen in the criminal justice system. Uh, while it is very common for there to be discrepancies, eyewitness testimony doesn't always line up perfectly with other facts. Um, we have uh, pretty much a common reaction of if you don't have every detail perfect, we actually just won't take your case at all. And that has to tie into kind of the culture we have around discussing rape and sexual violence and believing that it's so commonly falsely reported. I don't believe that's true. Research doesn't indicate that that's true. Um, but actually research finds something fascinating when you're looking at false reports. Um, a lot of times, Uh, claims that are valid can be mislabeled as false reports just because a victim doesn't act like they're supposed to according to the perception of an officer or maybe there is information missing and rather than finding out the truth of the matter, they just blatantly assume that it is untrue. So this is actually an opportunity, I think, not just to focus on what Rolling Stone did but to talk more generally in society. How are we treating victims who are affected by trauma, whose memories aren't perfect, um, when they are truthfully reporting that something bad has happened
6: This is something that I asked our our other two journalists, which is perhaps reporters need some training in how to interview and how to talk to uh, victims of sexual assault or rape victims, or in this case, you know, the victim of what she says was a horrifying gang rape that went on for three hours, which is, as a reporter, you're not not a member of the police department, you're a reporter, the kinds of, of questions that would lead closer to the truth. Do you think there's some need for that kind of training?
10: I think there's a need for training for anyone, not just journalists, but campus officials, for police um, to deal with individuals that are affected by trauma. I want to be very clear. I don't doubt Jackie at all for a second. She has made an allegation. She has stood by it. And it is, unfortunately, just an allegation until a proper investigation is done. I don't question, neither does uh, a lot of the other members who are noted in the story with, of course, false names. They say that something did happen. The question is, what was it? Right. Um, and that is something a journalist can get to the bottom of, just like the police should or a campus that they're doing their own investigation should. But to go about it just looking at a victim saying, you tell me, oh, some details are wrong. Yes, it didn't happen at all. That's not an investigation. You start, you get information, and you definitely go to other people with hand information, not second and third hand, and you compare. And there are going to be confl- conflicts Um that's common even with the shooting in Ferguson we have eyewitnesses who saw different things that happens in investigations um, and that's why we really need objective third parties and so yes journalists police campus officials they should all have a uh, very intelligent training about how to speak with survivors how to react when discrepancies arise because the automatic knee-jerk reaction of disbelieving creates more silence you're actually not assisting and it is very common and explainable
11: Well, so now what's happened is that the Washington Post did this, um, extensive re-reporting of the story, uh, extensive look into, um, talking to, uh, Jackie's friends who, you know, the Post didn't have any agreement with, this is one of the, like, sometimes journalism is just like so, so complicated for, or like the ethics of it are so complicated. So, once something's public, other reporters are not bound by the same agreements that an initial reporter is bound by right right so so, so early's what?
2: initial protect initial attempt to protect Jackie from all the scrutiny ended up backfiring because now all these other reporters can go in and scrutinize Jackie because they have no agreement to to follow what she asked for-
11: exactly and so so the post talked to a lot of uh Jackie's friends rolling stone also talked to a lot of Jackie's friends they you know I, I think that now it's it's becoming a little bit clear that that rolling stone didn't talk to a couple friends that i think um they probably should have and that um so the post did this long thing saying well now there are all these uh you know <clears throat> some of her friends are casting doubts although one of the friends said that his his version of casting Doubt on her story wasn't that she that Jackie had been gang raped, but that she had been forced to perform oral sex on a group of men. Which, which of course is, is
2: gang raped. Exactly.
11: This is one of these things where you know if if the if the takeaway from this entire story is like it's just it's just so so screwed up that that um, the the post is getting credit for like debunking a story when. That is, like, part of the debunking. Right, part of the
2: debunking of this wasn't rape is it, the the description is still fucking rape. Yeah. Like, every single aspect of this conversation is completely fucked because of rape culture and because, yeah, you want to say, well, this person was lying. They described a different type of rape to me, but we don't recognize that as rape.
11: Yeah, so there was this this post story that, that asked, I think, some some reasonable questions, I think, made a lot of... Assumptions that were not reasonable. The post story also made some <laughs> drew some conclusions that they then had to retract. Yes, saying that they had found this guy who's referred to in the initial story as under the pseudonym Drew. The Washington Post said that uh, Drew uh, did not go to the f- sorority that's that's the the center of the Rolling Stone story. Fraternity. Sorry, the fraternity. Drew didn't go to this fraternity, and that he's, uh, and the the post said, and Drew has never met Jackie, to which a lot of people said, well, how are you, like, what proof do you have that, that, I mean, is it yeah. just that he
2: said they've never met? Right, because, yeah, he says, I've never met her, so then the post takes that, again, the post takes this fucking guy's word as, well, that's fine, we don't need to independently verify that, guy yeah. says he didn't meet her.
11: So then they deleted that.
2: Without issuing a correction. Without
11: issuing a correction.
2: So the 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 I mean the, the biggest at this point when all this is happening this was happening on Friday and the the most horrifying thing, um, and I think what continues to be the most horrifying thing, is none of this. As far as I know, none of this "quote unquote" debunks Jackie's story. None of this means that a sexual assault didn't take place. What it means is, yeah, that you can find inconsistencies or different people say different things about something, and now. Not only Jackie's story, but the entire premise of the story, which is that this college and most colleges have a serious sexual assault prob- problem. That whole everything, every last bit of it has been cast into question in the mainstream media. Now.
11: Well, I, and the other important development from Friday is that the the fraternity, a, a lawyer for the fraternity issued a statement saying that there was no official party that night, or there, yeah, there was no official function. They said that, that the person described doesn't match the description of any of the fraternity brothers. None of the fraternity brothers worked at this fitness center that Drew in the story is claimed to have worked at. And each of those claims, you know, saying that there's no, there was no official party that night, that, I mean, I think, is is worthless. That's not worth the paper that it's printed on. It's yeah. a fraternity at, a, at UVA.
2: On a Friday night. Uh,
11: yeah, and, I mean, frats are not known for their meticulous record-keeping. No,
2: yeah, no official uh, party does not mean that there weren't a bunch of people drinking at that house that night.
11: One of the other things that the frat says is that, you know, we don't do initiations in the fall, or we don't do pledge. Pledge week isn't in the fall, pledge week is in the spring, so we couldn't have been... This couldn't have been part of like pledging or initiation or whatever again, take that with the biggest grain of salt that you can get your hands on right and so so what at least what was pointed out in the official fraternity letter I think we're in the grand scheme of thing relatively minor inconsistencies that yes you can say Rolling Stone should have been able to include those consistencies or find them somehow or whatever. But the reaction to that statement was, well, this calls everything into question. Right. The fraternity statement does not call everything into question. (laughs) It it, It calls a very small amount of facts into question, and then to take the next step to, well, this discredits everything the the audience has to make that jump on their own
2: yeah and it has to take the fraternity's word as uh inherently trustworthy yeah uh and it has to take jackie's word as inherently suspect right and right the fact that if jackie's retelling of something had inconsistencies this is something that a lot of uh very wonderful advocates um were saying all day all on friday and all weekend basically was it is the nature of not only a all memory but especially of recalling traumatic memories to have inconsistencies so that doesn't mean shit and if the story had zero inconsistencies at all people would have said well this is too perfect she's it's constructed there's no possible way this is the thing you cannot be a perfect victim there's no possible way that you can retell the story and have yourself not be cast as suspect that's just that's just the way and and that's not to say that we shouldn't scrutinize the story and it's also not to say that that there weren't mistakes made in the way that rolling stone reported i think the biggest ones now that even though they were maybe trying to protect jackie they've it's ended up it's ended up being something much worse mm-hmm. for jackie um and in rolling stones like Retraction or correction, they threw her under the bus. The
11: initial note to readers was not good. It it has since been updated and is now significantly better. Yeah,
2: and Rolling Stone, I think, is really, it seems as if they're really trying to make this right, but the initial note said that they misplaced their trust in Jackie, which Mm. they've also apparently since removed.
11: Yeah, that language is not there, and Um, and there's there's no correction or there's no like issue to update, which, again, is something that I think really people are going to notice it, may as well be open about that. Right. I think that that at this point, not being open about it is not the best policy.
2: Right, right. And so not like I'm trying to bend over backwards necessarily to defend Rolling Stone, because I think that especially what they did on Friday was really, I think that they, yeah, they they threw their source under the bus in a really, really, really bad way. They've since, I think that they have been trying to make it right, but... The problem, I think, with the with the reporting, in making this agreement with Jackie, they left without anticip- – I, I mean, so the thing is that – the thing that I maybe wouldn't have anticipated, but maybe that they should have anticipated, is that because this is a story about a woman talking about a sexual assault, it's going to be under – the most horrible microscope you've ever pictured in your entire life right right? and people
11: are going to do everything they can to discredit it
2: so on the one hand you absolutely cannot it is impossible to have a perfect victim no victim will be perfect because of rape culture no matter how perfect never perfect enough no matter how airtight the story never airtight enough because some fucking horrible wrecking ball is going to come in and Mm -hmm. and and ruin it wrongfully but because there was this you know, this thing where they had not reached out to the other sources, that lack of airtightness opened it up for this now nightmare again because of what the because of these inconsistencies, which again do not mean the Jackie's story isn't true, because of those now Jackie's story is cast as, as untrustworthy and the entire, like I said before, the entire premise that UVA, that fraternities, that, that, that college campuses, that administrations have a problem with, with sexual assault, that entire premise now has been thrown under the bus along with Jackie's credibility and it's, it's, it's just a nightmare.
12: I'm talking again to my friend Katie Klebusik. You can find her work at katiespeak.com, on Twitter at katie underscore speak. Let's talk a little bit – you you, you mentioned this and talk about this in your article at BuzzFeed um, about kind of the – how people's memories are also not exact and expecting them to be exact is also ridiculous and and, 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 and a a, a bad way of going about this. Um, Just because, again, ask anyone to describe anything that happened in their life. And multiple times, you're, you're going to get variances on it. So talk talk a little bit about about how that's a, a bad way when talking about rape and sexual assault.
13: Sure. Um. I mean, you do some stand up, right, Matt? Is your set the same every time?
12: Uh, it is exactly the same. Every time. you know, and the, the audience reaction is always the same. They just love it to death. <laughs> but I mean, you're, you
13: and you, I yeah. mean, you
12: you vary things up. You, yeah. You,
13: well, you you rehearse that, right? Like you're a performer mm-hmm. who has rehearsed that and put it together. And your set's not even the same every time. And right. I mean, you just. Every detail of everything that's ever happened to you isn't immediately at the forefront. Uh, I think the first time I heard Zerlina Maxwell just talk about how, about her assaults, she quote unquote did it right. She went the next day to the hospital and reported, uh, and went through all of that. And you, you tell that story like a dozen times the first day. You know, you tell it to the triage nurse when you check in. You tell it to the nurse who comes to you in that, can 't even call it an exam room right you 're just surrounded by curtains um, you tell it to the doctor you tell it to the responding police officer and then to the detective at the at the police station and probably also to that detective's partner you probably had to tell it to someone to get them to take you to the hospital you probably have to come home and tell it to a roommate or a parent or a partner just that first night the number of times that you have to tell that story you're just even if you hadn't been through trauma and there's a lot of research on sexual assault um, and the PTSD that that typically comes with it is a lot right. like the PTSD that people experience after combat and we we recognize that right pretty widely that people's memories aren't that great and they're going to have you know, problems with relationships and all that stuff, but we don't recognize it in this very common instance, which is sexual assault. Um, Ellie Saffron has a story at the, the same page as Tweez and Mine um, at BuzzFeed. She's She started Surviving in Numbers, this really great um, organization. She was assaulted as a freshman on campus. Uh, it took her a while to go to the police because she was afraid of reprisal, like a lot of people are. He was someone that her friends knew. Uh, it happened in the backseat of her car. Um, and so she had to drive around literally with the crime scene with her for the nine months it took her to get to a place where she, could, she felt strong enough to report. And she describes in her piece why they didn't go through with the prosecution. Ten days before the case went to trial, the prosecutor sat her down with the detective and her victim advocate, and they interrogated her and told her she was wrong because she couldn't remember which door the perpetrator had used to leave her car. They said, we're dropping the case. Just tell us you're making it up. Wow. And that—that's how I mean, and that's 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 in law enforcement, right? Where like people, un, people should understand, after all, all the exposure of unreliable eyewitness t- testimony, and and eyewitnesses arguably aren't traumatized the way victims and survivors are. I mean, police and prosecutors have to prep their have to prep their. Um, the people that they put on the stand regularly to make sure that their stories stay the same. These are people who should know that, and that's and and that's how they're treating uh, victims of sexual assault. We just, it's a, it's a really broad problem. And, and the, the bigger implication from Jackie's story, if you read, I mean, anybody who's tried to talk about it on Twitter gets attacked with people saying, uh, oh, is innocent until proven guilty and all that stuff. And what they miss about her story specifically and how it's different from someone like Allie's is that she didn't try to prosecute. She never named her accuser publicly. She wasn't, mm-hmm. and neither was I. Neither one of us are seeking some sort of, you know, justice from law enforcement. We just want our stories validated and to possibly help other people right so like i tell my story and people understand that they're less alone and make it make it easier to get healing and the people that are screaming that we shouldn't believe survivors until it's been proven in court well that's just ridiculous i mean that's just that's not how that's not how life works you know when yeah. somebody comes to you and tells you something happened to them you don't ask if they have an arrest Report with them before you believe your friend, right, and so we right. we have to understand that there's a difference between guilty beyond a reasonable doubt in court and just simply believing other human beings
12: and just basic human decency and how and how you actually treat the the victims of this, which again, this is something that I, I want to get to your thoughts on i mean we, i mean we've touched on it somewhat here, but kind of what you think the actual because I, I think that there are there definitely you can kind of look at just kind of the consequences of what the how how horrible Rolling Stone handled this uh, f- and pretty much in every every regard here like what what are the consequences for you know victims of, of rape going forward I mean is it just that you know the media's going to be even worse, people are going to be even worse, their friends are going to be i mean what, what what potential are the consequences, and what do we need to do to combat those consequences
13: i think the the sort of individual consequences for this is that basically everyone is talking about this story. And even if you don't think that you have, um, victims and survivors of sexual assault in your networks in your family and group of friends, you do the statistics say you do, you know, people, Mm -hmm. even if you don't know that, you know, and they're listening to you tell this story and they're listening to how you talk about this whether or not you have skepticism for her whether or not you're cheering on that widely discredited jerkbag who doxxed her and publicized her information all over the internet the way that you talk about this and the way that you the way that you respond to the casual use of the word rape and the way that you respond to things like you know rape jokes where the victim is the butt of the joke that sort of thing it's something we can all do in our everyday lives is the way that we talk with the, with the people that are around us is to create a safe space so that people know if something happened, if something did happen to them, that you're someone that they can go to with that. And I, I wish that there was some sort of super easy way to fix this, right? But it's a whole, it's a systemic patriarchal cultural problem and the only way to do it long term is to do things like that is to understand and listen and empathize um victim blaming is really deeply ingrained for lots of reasons i mean there's the clickbait versions that the rape apologists use right like they're making money so they so they have the salacious you know ridiculous um headlines and, and fake reporting but there's also a a personal preservation reason. If you can, if you as a human can look at a victim of assault and say that X about that person is why or how they were assaulted, then you yourself can avoid becoming a victim. And we all know that marginalized groups are a lot more likely to be targeted, right? So the trans people, people of color, women more than men, though men are assaulted as well. It can still happen to anybody. It can happen to someone you know. And that's really personally terrifying. Of course mm-hmm. it is. So yes, people who victim blame, I, I like using the word jerkbag because it's not nice to do. But I also, <laughs> but I also recognize that there's a real, there's a real internal preservation reason why people do that. No one wants to be the victim of a trauma. And if they, if they think that they can figure out Why someone else is a victim, then they can somehow avoid being that, or doing that, or going there, or wearing that—all of that stuff. So we have to. uh, uh, There's no way we're going to change that culture of victim blaming until we have some sort of understanding for why people, just everyday people, not the, not the people sitting on the panels at Fox News, uh, but but just the everyday people, why they have a tendency to do that.
3: You wrote your book, Virgin or Vamp, How the Press Covers Sex Crimes, 20 years ago. Do you feel like we've made any progress? I mean, I think for for someone as an outsider who may not be in the press, they would assume that progress has been made just simply for the sake of how much it is being talked about in the press, more so now than it was before. But is it still being talked about in the same way?
14: Um Well, the progress tends to come in waves, so we've gone back and forth, back and forth, and we're in a surge forward right now with all these stories, especially about campus rape, which follow the heels of the stories about rape in the military. Um, And in some ways, this shows progress because of the sheer amount of attention. In other ways, though, I'm alarmed at how backwards we're being, there's a new readiness to disbelieve and bash victims. And I think a lot of the um, rape myths that hold that um, that women ask for it, that it's their fault if they're drinking, that they lie about it, that they've got something to gain about reporting rape, um, are raising all their ugly heads again, even though they've been disproven by studies over and over again. So I am alarmed at that. And I do think that quite a lot of the reporting I've seen Not in the Rolling Stone, but elsewhere, um, especially attacking the victim has come from, from real ignorance about rape and what it actually does to people.
3: So would you say we've gotten worse
14: in some ways? In some ways we've gotten worse. Yeah, there isn't, but because of this new willing, willingness, to um, push victims. You know, the problem is what I've been saying all along is that we should stop covering rape through the point of view of the victim and always concentrating on the victim. And like in the Rolling Stones story, the whole story seemed to rest on this one young woman's story, where since it was actually about the failure of the institution of the university, it would have been better to have collected many more stories and not put all the weight on one. And if you were going to point at fraternity, to then go to the fraternity. But it's possibly legitimate to do stories about institutional abuse of rape victims without going to the rape victim and getting the obvious denials you mentioned.
3: In a recent piece for The New Yorker titled Reporting on Rape, Margaret Talbot writes, Believe the victims makes sense as a starting presumption, but a presumption of belief should never preclude questions. It's not wrong or disrespectful for reporters to ask for corroboration or for editors to insist on it. Helen, what do you think about that?
14: I uh, all due respect to Margaret Talbot, but I don't think she could have ever covered rape. Rape is, is you can't corroborate it. There are not going to be witnesses. Most victims do not go to the police because they're too afraid. or they do not, uh, They're not going to come up with any kind of proof. You, you know, Nobody is in the room but the assailant and the victim. So you can't assume that you're going to have all the same sort of standards as other crimes. Also, we do need to remember that rape is a deeply traumatizing crime. It um, causes as much post-traumatic stress disorder as combat. That's been known for decades. So you're dealing with traumatized people, and you have to respect that and treat them gently. If you start blaming them in the middle of the interview or saying, You've got to prove this or I won't believe you, you will lose the interview and indeed we will hardly be able to tolerate the all. So I her her point there is is really is really off off kilter.
3: Back to Lena Dunham for just a second. She wrote a Buzzfeed response to those who are skeptical of her story as well as the stories of other sexual assault survivors. She wrote Survivors have the right to tell their stories, to take back control after the ultimate loss of control. There is no right way to survive rape, and there is no right way to be a victim. What survivors need more than anything is to be supported, whether they choose to pursue a criminal investigation or to rebuild their world on their own terms. You can help by never defining a survivor by what has been taken from her. You can help by saying, I believe you. Helen, do you think that journalists like The Rolling Stone, uh like like the journalist behind the Rolling Stone article have an obligation to operate in the same way as Lena Dunham has said uh those who want to support survivors of sexual assault should operate?
14: Um, well, if you're going to interview traumatized people with any sort of sen- sensitivity, yes, you need to cons- you need to affirm that you is that you believe them and you support them? Um, that is why I don't think trying to bring down an institution on the back of one woman who who was horribly raped, or say she was horribly raped, is the way to go about these stories. What we should be doing is looking at the rapists. We should be looking at the men who rape, the culture that creates rape. We should be looking at what goes on in fraternities. We should be finding whistleblowers from inside fraternities and stop constantly hammering victims to have to stand up and, and expose themselves to the world. That's, I, I really think we go about rape reporting in general completely upside down. It's like, it's like doing a story on our, it's not a good analogy, but if somebody, if, a, if you find a smashed pot, are you going to interview the pot? about why it was smashed, or are you going to interview the person who smashed it? So we really need to pay attention to what it is in our culture that teaches men to rape and allows them to get away with it. That's the way to cover rape, not on the backs of some poor girl like like Jackie.
0: My goal with this show is to inform, inspire, and activate listeners to push for positive change. With the support of listeners, I've been able to expand what we do here and make the show better over time, and the only way to continue doing that, to grow and improve, is with your support. I don't need a giant pile of money to run this show. I just need a steady, dependable stream of 5 and $10 monthly donations from people like you. For signing up, you'll also get access to special bonus content, including some behind-the-scenes stuff and more of my commentary. If you believe in the mission of this show as much as I do, please help it continue to grow and improve by becoming a member today. Details are on the membership page at bestofleft.com. Thanks so much for your support.
15: We've gotten a couple of calls in the last week or so uh, asking why I haven't discussed or addressed uh, Rolling Stone, Jackie, the UVA scandal, what's been going down. And the fact of the matter is, it's just a really difficult thing to talk about. And I'm not sure uh, that me sitting here alone in this room with the Texas at-risk youth and my privilege and my penis and my not being at risk for this kind of victimization, I was really the right person to talk about. And I was just sitting back and listening. I was reading, reading a lot of other people talking about it. Uh, reading Amanda Hess, reading Lindy West, reading Roxane Gay, reading Rolling Stone, reading Washington Post, reading Eric Wimple, reading Emily Ophie, just taking it in and not really jumping in myself. Sometimes I don't feel like I have to jump into every pool and pee. Anyway, I've been thinking a little bit more about it, and, and I'm going to talk about it, but I'm going to say that we're going to talk about this after the beginning of the year. I'm going to put one thing out there today, but after the beginning of the year, next week is our Christmas show that we taped in Seattle last week. And so I'm going to say something briefly that I want to get off my chest right now. And the next year, uh, first show of the year, hopefully, we will have a couple of guests in to talk about what this all means. The UVA thing, rape, false reports of rape, which are anomalies, all of this. But I, I do have to get this off my chest. And this is going to seem like an irrelevant tangent, but I will uh, it'll make sense in a minute. Uh, I came out in 1980-ish, 1981. I came out uh, right before HIV AIDS slammed in the gay community. And, you know, I was there for the worst of it. I was there with my eyes open, and there was a time, and a lot of people don't, you know, people talk about HIV-AIDS stigma now, the stigma or shame of being HIV-positive now, and we've talked about that a lot on the show. We get calls from guys who are HIV-positive who feel sort of uh, burdened by the shame and the stigma of it, and we get calls from people who are negative who are clearly uh, phobic about HIV and what it is now, what it means to have it now. Um, and the way they reject or react to partners who have HIV, which can be irrational and out of all proportion to their risks of acquiring uh, HIV in any sort of sexual interaction these days with somebody who's positive in treatment and has zero viral load. Anyway, I remember... The worst of it. 83, 84, 85, 86. When people were dying in droves. When people were being discriminated against. When people were being thrown out of their apartments, fired from their jobs, abandoned by their lovers. And it wasn't like the gay community was golden then. I know the gay community was better than most, but there were, we weren't covered in glory ourselves either. A lot of these people who early HIV AIDS victims Uh, who lost their jobs or their apartments were thrown out, were thrown out, You know, were fired by gay managers at the restaurant where they worked, were thrown out by their gay landlords or their gay boyfriends. There was a lot of ugliness in the gay community before everybody realized, I think in about 24 months, that we were all in this together and that being shitty to somebody with AIDS wasn't going to protect you. But anyway, the stigma and the shame of having AIDS was so great. People had their houses burned down. Who had AIDS. People were forced out of places. The stigma and the shame was so great, so crushing. And yet some people falsely claimed that they had HIV AIDS. Some people said they had AIDS who did not. Because after the initial period of terror and fear when people first began to pull together, 85-ish, there was this outpouring suddenly of sympathy and support for people with AIDS and there were services for people with aids there were some in some places financial incentives there were the housing assistance and here and there a make a wish foundation for people with aids sprang up because to have hiv aids in 85 was to be dying and dying rapidly and dying pretty gruesomely and there was this desire to ease that path but mostly there was this sympathy and support and there was in some circles there was a credibility or authority that somebody who had AIDS could claim that they could speak to and about the disease from a place of knowledge. And there were people who lied. There were people who said they had AIDS who did not because they wanted to claim that mantle of authority, because they wanted to access those services, because uh, you know the 87 March on Washington, uh, the speaker from the stage announced that everyone should allow our beloved people with AIDS to come to the front of the march. It was a way in. If you had AIDS, you deserved all this support. And if you didn't have AIDS, you could access all of the support and attention by lying about it. Almost all people, almost all of them to a person who said that they had AIDS had fucking AIDS. It was rare and odd and crazy making and galling when someone would lie about it. It was an anomaly. Because a couple of people lied about having AIDS because they wanted the attention or the support, the emotional support or the financial support or the service or whatever, because a handful, tiny handful of people lied about having AIDS. That didn't mean that we should disbelieve people who came forward and said that they had AIDS. Almost all people who stepped forward and said that they had AIDS fucking had AIDS. So our default assumption always, despite it being known that a handful of people had lied was that the people who said that they had AIDS fucking had AIDS. Anyway, I've been thinking about those guys, those guys who lied about having AIDS. As I read about UVA, as I read about the fallout, as I read of about Rolling Stone's incompetence, as I read about Jackie's misrepresentations, embellishments, or perhaps... Quoting Hannah Rosen from Slate here now, or perhaps her fabrication of this story. Some people are going to point to this if it does ultimately unravel, if it is one of those rare anomalous false reports of rape. Right-wingers will hold it up and point to it as evidence that people who claim to have been raped should not be believed because this tiny handful of people have falsely claimed to have been raped. Again, I would look back to my experience and the the gay community experience and the AIDS Communities' experience with people who lied about having AIDS in the late 80s and early 90s. And they were rare, rare, and also not held up as proof that nobody who said that they had AIDS had AIDS, or that we should not believe people who stepped forward to say that they had AIDS. We should, and we did, and we do still, even knowing that there are some people out there who lie. We see this with Munchausen syndrome, where people claim that they have cancer, shave their heads, make themselves sick. We don't hold those people up as proof that nobody fucking has leukemia, or that somebody who comes forward doesn't deserve the benefit of the doubt when your friend says that she has leukemia, despite the fact that there have been countless cases of people faking cancer. We don't say nobody has cancer, or that people who say that they have cancer should not be believed. We believe. We default to belief, because why would somebody lie unless they were crazy? Or seeking attention. And because some people out there are crazy or seeking attention, does not mean that we should default to a posture of disbelief when it comes to HIV-AIDS or cancer or sexual assault or rape or anything else. But what prompted this, you know, memory about people lying about having AIDS was one of the defenses early on as the UVA story began to unravel is that people said that we should believe Jackie's version of events and perhaps Jackie was traumatized and sometimes people are so traumatized by their experiences of sexual assault or rape that they misremember it or details get conflated or they're so traumatized or shocked or suffering from PTSD that their narrative can become a little unreliable. It doesn't mean that they weren't fucking raped. But a lot of what I was reading was rape is so traumatic and horrible and the stigma and shame are so great that no one would ever lie about this. The stigma and shame and horror of AIDS was so great. And yet people lied about it. We should still believe people. We should, we did then believe people when they came forward and said that they had AIDS. But we do live in a world where some people will lie about anything. And if we become too invested in any one individual story, if we attach too much importance and weight to it, if that one story unravels, It can threaten the support or sympathy or the stories of all those many more millions of people who are telling the truth. Rape is a huge problem, a cultural problem, a societal problem, criminal justice problem, and one that requires a great deal of work and a really a a cultural shift. And I don't think we should bog down or allow this debate to become bogged down on fighting over one person's story. Writing over one example, one narrative, one magazine article.
0: Reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism support survivors with Know Your Nine. This episode happened because sexual assault at colleges and universities is at an epidemic level. That the Rolling Stone reporter was bad at her job and may have coerced sensationalized details doesn't change the pertinent fact. One in five female students will be assaulted during their lifetime on campus. These students will regularly not be believed, have little legal recourse, sometimes be forced to transfer, be expelled for reporting, end up saddled with tens of thousands of dollars in debt from schools they won't even receive degrees from and deal with the trauma of their experience for the rest of their lives. Federal law designed to create gender parity, Title IX, exists to provide framework for students dealing with sexual assault. Known better for its effect on athletics, you know, schools can't have twice as many male sports teams as women's sports teams anymore, for example. Title IX has much broader applications that are woefully underpublicized and underutilized. And so the organization Know Your Nine was created in 2013 to educate students, advocates, and supporters on everything from how to file a complaint under Title IX and where to find a lawyer to how to speak to the media and handle school retaliation. Know Your Nine is a national group run by survivors and driven by students seeking to end campus sexual violence. Their importance cannot be overstated. Campus culture is nearly impossible for one person or even a group to change during the very short Time they're enrolled. Change simply takes longer than a couple of years. A grassroots network that holds schools accountable while helping inform the public at large and supporting survivors is critical to making all colleges safe for all students. KnowYour9.org, that's the Roman numerals I and X for nine there, has a number of easy, practical ways to assist their work and make a difference in your community. Obviously, you can always donate if you have the means. They do a lot of trainings and free help, so the money goes to good use. Their Provide tab has resources for victims of campus sexual assault, including how to file a complaint and information on trans discrimination and the effects of immigration status. The Related Resources tab prepares victims for dealing with school retaliation and new legislation, and the activism tab guides students who want to change their campus culture and join the movement. But perhaps the most broadly helpful and important part of the website is the I Want To tab. When you click I Want To Support a Survivor, you jump to a detailed list of do's and don'ts for family, friends, professors, activists, and advocates. The way you, yes, you, and absolutely everyone, respond to stories about sexual assault in the media and in plot lines and in pop culture affects the survivors in your life. Even if you don't know that you know someone, the numbers say that you probably do. So take 15 minutes to prep yourself in case a friend or family member comes to you. Being supportive in that situation isn't necessarily intuitive, and doing a little reading ahead of time can mean a world of difference to someone who needs you in that moment. What they need first and foremost is for you to simply believe them. The hashtag Believe Survivors was created long before the Rolling Stone article that prompted a current wave of discussion about victim blaming. It sounds so simple, but it is so rare in our culture for a victim to be believed implicitly by the person they reach out to. If you take nothing else out of this episode and the work that groups like Know Your Nine do, let it be that two-word directive, Believe Survivors. The segment notes include all of the links to this information, as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If supporting survivors matters to you, be sure to hit The share buttons to spread the word about Know Your Nine via social media so that others in your network can connect and join the fight to end rape culture.
7: Activism. Activism.
10: Mm -hmm. Activism. Come on out from in front of the television. Bust out of your self imposed media prison. There's a whole big world out there, y'all.
8: And some serious stuff is going down. Civil war, intolerance, AIDS obliteration. The usual madness, but not enough frustration about what's troubling Earth's nations.
10: The spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days, and it will not be your saving grace. Why not replace your dreams of gracing life
14: stage with action?
5: This is bigger than Bill Cosby. This is about, you know, women and violence on women. This is, this is about women um, finding their voice. You know, to um, feel that it's okay to come out and, and tell someone, a loved one, the police, a- anyone, what, what has happened to them. And that they won't be vilified and that they won't be questioned or attacked for telling the truth that was iconic supermodel Beverly Johnson speaking this week to Tamron Hall for the Today Show about her allegation that she was drugged by Bill Cosby nearly 30 years ago joining my table now is Byron Hurt who is an anti-sexism activist filmmaker and co-founder of Mentors in Violence Prevention and Alexandra Brodsky who's co-founder of Know Your Nine and editor at Feministing.com and I, I want to start with you because um, I want to go back a little bit to the UVA case and you know we've talked about the difficulty of of reporting on, thinking about the issue of skepticism in journalism. What if you're a Title IX enforcement officer on a college campus? You've gotten a report, you've heard a
9: story. What are the challenges that you're balancing in that moment. Mm -hmm. Well, I think the good news is that a school's response mechanisms should never be just one person. So there are people in different roles, and I think it's absolutely essential that when a survivor comes forward, that there is someone who says, I am on your team, I believe you, I'm sticking with you the whole way. Mm -hmm. But that also doesn't mean that we don't need somewhat neutral adjudicators. And I say somewhat because I think that there's a political commitment behind a sentence like, I believe survivors, Mm -hmm. which doesn't necessarily Necessarily mean I can't look at facts in front of me and I can't make decisions but just says I know that this is not a coveted status I know that the number of false reports is pretty low mm-hmm. uh, but I think it's also very important in that moment, that we recognize that it's not accused students' rights versus victims' rights in this really sort of zero-sum game. Mm -hmm. Because everyone, victims especially, need these adjudications to be seen as legitimate by the public, Mm -hmm. to be respected. Which is part of what's going on with the
5: Rolling Stone piece, is that uh, uh, to the extent that this is bad journalism, it neither
9: does anything good for Jackie nor for any other survivor, right? And I think it's such a shame that... We are asking these women who come forward to take on this tremendous burden of being the movement. It was Angie, and then it was Emma, and then it was Jackie. And I'm so glad that we're listening to their stories, but we have to do some of the work, too. It can't just be on them to have the story that moves an entire nation to policy change immediately. This point
5: of sort of where the burden lies for addressing sexual assault... um, Susan Dominus writing for the New York Times this week wrote about, um, she says, "What if every kid on a college campus was given new language, a phrase whose meaning could not be mistaken that signaled peril for both sides that might be more easily uttered. One phrase that might work is red zone, as in, hey, we're in the red zone where this is starting to feel too red zone. So this is... She's, she's suggesting that no is sometimes hard to say and so maybe we need red zone language and I, I guess my main thought as I read it was oh look so now we have to wear nail polish so that we can make sure we're not being drugged and we ha- and we're responsible for determining when we're going into the red zone like. Is there, in the work that you're doing with men on campus, how do we shift that burden away from simply relying on girls and women?
16: Well, I mean, how about teaching boys and men that we shouldn't rape girls and women? I mean, I think that's what the the larger message should be, and I I think I come from a very unique position of uh, being a a founding member of a bystander intervention program called the Mentors and Violence Prevention Program um, that really tries to um, educate and inform and shift the culture of masculinity so that we begin to like really confront rape culture and I think I haven't read the article but it sounds to me that this is just another thing that places the responsibility and the onus on women in terms of protecting herself as opposed to teaching boys and men that rape is a crime, rape is a serious issue, to really pay attention to uh, the, the physical cues that, that, that girls and women are giving you. But most importantly, to make sure that you're not putting yourself in a position where you're, you're violating another woman's physical mm-hmm. and human rights.
17: Hello, Jay, and best of the left audience. This is Steve calling from Alaska. I called in to add a licensed healthcare perspective to the strike conversation. There are two primary things that I think a licensed healthcare professional should keep in mind on this topic. The first is the general legal response. The question here is whether or not healthcare workers should have their rights suppressed because they have a special role to play in society. The clear answer here is, of course, no. For the answer to this question, people can turn to both the United Nations Universal Declaration on Human Rights, specifically Articles 19 and 20, as well as the National Labor Relations Act, Section 7, that's American law. These laws very clearly outline the right to protest and collectively bargain, and there are no exceptions, no exemptions for healthcare workers. For the second part of the answer to this, you have to look at professional ethics. And the question is whether or not healthcare workers should take specialized uh, measures or make specialized decisions when it comes to their participation in protesting, et cetera. And the clear answer here, of course, is yes. Uh, I'd like to give a nursing response on this, but I'm not a nurse, and their professional code of ethics is something you have to pay to get access to, which I'm not about to do since I'm not a nurse. But we can take examples from both the American Medical Association and the American Physical Therapy Association. For the American Medical Association, we can look at four specific quotes from their Code of Ethics. The first is uh, that physicians are required to, quote, to advocate for change in healthcare care payment and delivery models to promote access to high-quality care for all patients. Quote two, whenever engaging in advocacy efforts, physicians must ensure that the health of patients is not jeopardized and that patient care is not compromised. Quote three, physicians and physicians in training should press... For needed reforms through the use of informational campaigns, non-disruptive public demonstrations, lobbying and publicity campaigns, and collective negotiation, or other options that do not jeopardize the health of patients or compromise patient care. Uh, Fourth quote, As professionals, physicians individually and collectively have an ethical responsibility to ensure that all persons have access to needed care regardless of their economic needs. So the obvious conclusion from this is that physicians all have an ethical obligation to become activists when and where needed? The same is essentially true for the uh, American Physical Therapy Association and their code of ethics. It reads, for example, physicians. I'm sorry, physical therapists shall promote organizational behaviors and business practices that benefit patients and society. Uh, this includes the statement that physical therapists shall participate in efforts to meet the health needs of people locally, nationally, and globally, and. Um, third quote advocate to reduce health disparities in health inequalities, improve access to health care services and address the health wellness and preventive health care needs of people overall conclusion of course from all this is that if you're aware of the ethical principles associated with being a licensed healthcare care professional in the US you must conclude that we have to protest you know collectively bargain etc whenever necessary to Assist our patients. If you don't, in many cases, you are most likely breaking law because um, some healthcare uh, law, specifically, which is a state thing, indicates that if you are not abiding by the code of ethics, you are, in fact, breaking the law. So, hopefully, that was at least minimally informative. I love the show. Keep up the excellent work.
7: Hi Jay, this is Nathan from Vancouver, Washington, and I'm calling about the uh, recent Capitalism episode and the segment in which uh, Ralph Nader discusses appropriately Milton Friedman's recommendation of the negative income tax. Now, I read uh, Milton Friedman's book Free to Choose. It's an interesting read. On a side note, my dad is an arch conservative and gave it to me and had never read it. So when I told him that Milton Friedman suggested that it was a complete shocker for him. But I want to Propose that the, the negative income tax, aside from the administrative benefits, or that, that that minimum income is a much more dignified way of providing those services. Instead of saying, I'm gonna give you a card that you can buy diapers with, and you can't buy alcohol with it, you miscreant. You know, you, We're gonna be looking over your shoulder, and we're gonna say, here's the basic amount it takes to live. And for whatever reason you need it right now, here it is. And, you know, obviously if you're neglecting your children or whatever, that's, a, that's a, a, a thing for Child Protective Services or whatever to deal with. You you have no excuse. We gave you the money. If your children are neglected, then we're going to intervene. But, in, but for the vast majority of people, it takes away the stigma. You don't need food stamps. You have the money you need to buy food. You don't have, you know, medical coupons or anything demeaning like that. You have, we gave you the money. There you go. Do what you're going to do with it. And so I think that replacing all of those things, not just for the bureaucracy of it, but just for the the, the dignity of it, to say each person deserves to have this baseline of life, is uh, is a real improvement over the the current way of providing those benefits. Thanks, and I really enjoy the discussion. Bye.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So I'm going to wrap up pretty quickly today. I have some good news. And also some good news. Uh, So first of all, the good news, I am actually finishing up production on my very last episode of the year before taking time off to visit family. And I know that sounds like sort of selfish good news. You, You probably don't care and it sounds like bad news to you. But there's also good news, which is that although I may be producing my last episode right now as I speak... This is not the last episode for you. You still have an episode ahead of you, which is nothing but fun, which I know because I already produced it yesterday. So keep an eye out for my annual collective waste of time episode on the war on Christmas to drop into your feed on the evening of the 23rd, right on schedule as normal. And just in time, to give you a break from your crazy family, it'll let you feel sane again, if only for a little while. Plus, I even say some mildly inspiring stuff at the end, uh, so don't miss that. So I'll talk to you again in just a few days, thanks to some sort of weird time warp, and then I will be back to our regularly shared reality on January 2nd, assuming all goes well. So that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com.
4: And it's a crying shame. How we get so trained We can't see past Our sad stories And wonder why